Welcome to the RPG Pod Dot Podcast. I'm Randall James, and does anyone know the rules for drowning? <laughs> yes, actually. <laughs> uh, with me is Tyler Kamstra. Hi, everybody. And Random Pal. Morning. All right, Tyler, what's going on? Uh, we're drowning today. <laughs> no, today... That's we're... a good metaphor, actually. <laughs> <laughs> today, we're going to talk about DMing or GMing your first game. So chances are a lot of people out there listening to the podcast may have already done this before. But even if you have, I'd like you to stick around because we're also going to offer some advice about how to support a first-time DM. If you have not DM'd or jammed your first time and want to, or if you know someone who's going to, this is going to be a really helpful episode for you because we've got a lot of nice things to say. And some of them are useful. You know, in case that you do plan to show this episode to someone who has never heard anything from us before, who maybe doesn't even have the context and just wants to jump right in, DM, of course, refers to Dungeon Master. GM refers to Game Mother. No, I'm not going to elaborate. <laughs> yeah, so I guess the big question for the first person approaching DMing, especially if everybody's new, everybody's coming to it for the first time, you know, table new players plus new DM, because, yeah, you want to play D&D or you want to play a tabletop game. How well do you think somebody needs to know the rules? Less than you'd think. It's very easy in D&D or Pathfinder to have someone hand you the DM book and say, okay, you've got a week, good luck. But just like learning to play for the first time, reading the whole book cover to cover and memorizing the contents is not necessary. If you know the game well enough to be a player and do okay without constantly flipping through the player's handbook, you're going to be totally fine. It is okay to get the rules wrong. It is okay to make things up on the fly and be corrected later. You do not need an encyclopedic knowledge of the rules, but giving them a quick look is definitely a good idea. One of the things that we talk about pretty frequently, one of the things that we talk about pretty frequently is that as a DM GM, the primary rule is rule zero. What you say goes, and if you are listening to this as a player, absolutely try and say like, hey, you know, in my experience, this is typically played out really well when it's handled this way, if you're kind of disagreeing about some particular point. But at the end of the day, it's your table, play it the way you want it, and then if, and, and we'll get to this in a bit, but if something maybe didn't work out great, your players will talk to you and they'll be like, hey, this particular thing, it really didn't feel good, it dragged the game out. So as much as you need to know the rules is enough to be consistent and enough to make sure that people are having fun. Because realistically, that's the only judge of success, right? I feel like I say this frequently. It's still true. As long as everyone at the table is having fun, you're doing your job. Yeah, I, what I would say for this, there's so many rules that you could be focused on. I definitely think picking up the adventure you plan on running, and if you're a first-time DM, you know we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but I think running a published module, like a published one-shot, something like this, is a fantastic way to get started. Really going through and saying, what rules am I likely to have to adjudicate? So if we're talking about 5e, if you have creatures that are going to fight that grapple, okay, do you know the grappling rules? If one of the creatures flies, do you know the flying rules? Looking at that and letting that guide where you focus on rules is going to help you have a great table. And then even having those references prepared so that you can, okay, I don't quite remember how this went, but I can pop back to it right quick. You know, that can be useful. If you do have experienced players at the table, I think that they can be a fantastic resource. Particularly if you're listening to the podcast, you are likely to be that experienced player. Be a little bit gentle, you know, especially if someone is DMing for like the very first time. They've got a ton of stuff going on. They are maybe going to be too willing 
if you try and be like, oh, no, maybe it should be like this, and then maybe that's going to give them a bad experience, right? That's why I was saying, you know, you can definitely make some gentle suggestions. And one of the other things will be really helpful, especially if they're trying to DM for the first time and there are other new players, be a resource for the other players. Take that off of the DM's shoulders as much as possible because we're all here to just play a game, enjoy a story, have fun. The rules are there so that we have something consistent that we can all agree on to follow. But that doesn't mean that they're set in stone. That doesn't mean that they're the absolute gospel truth. And if there's something obvious, someone's like, I want to climb a tree. And you're like, I don't think how to climb a tree right now. And someone says, oh, I'll do this. And as long as the DM says, yeah, that makes sense. If you as an experienced player know, that's not how that works. Don't worry about it. Let the obvious adjudication stand and then talk to them later. Obviously going to roll a nature check to climb a tree. It's a, you know, (laughs) I can't stop you. If you're that DM with an experienced player at the table, it is also totally fine to ask them questions, especially about the rules. If you are looking at someone trying to climb a tree and just can't come up with a decision, it's totally fine to say, hey, experienced player, what should be done to handle this? And they might say, oh, yes, this seems like a good case for athletics. And you can take that feedback or ignore it. That's totally fine. But the comfort of having someone at the table who you can ask questions of live and not feel pressure or not feel a sense of failure, like these are your friends at the table. Everyone's there to have a good time. And if you're going to have more fun by asking for help, do it. It's a great idea. It is quite often that I am the DM playing with the more experienced player. I play a few games with Tyler. What I have found is that I will often go and say, like, do you remember how this goes? And if Tyler's like, yeah, it's obviously this, I'll tend to take that and we'll run with it. And then I will look it up later. Like, I'll make a note. Specifically, I'll go read later and I'll go try to get myself to the same level of understanding so that next time it isn't that way. It also happens from time to time that you get in that situation where it's like, oh, you know, uh, grappling's a bad example because, yeah, dear God, Tyler understands the rules of grappling. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, you you get in a situation where it's like, I don't exactly remember how to adjudicate this. What I do often as a DM is I say, okay, we're going to do it this way. Like, we're just going to do a contested check, or I'm just going to have you roll and then add, you know, this modifier, that modifier. With the idea, and and I'll I'll tell the table, we're going to do it this way. Player, after your turn, go look up how this actually works. And then I'll keep the game going to keep the pace going. Uh, One of the things that I find as a DM makes me the most nervous is if everybody's flipping through the rule book to try to figure out how to do something. When ultimately, a lot of times when you, it's like, oh, I want to get this right. I I don't want to be that inexperienced DM. Realistically, you're trying to figure out if they get the butter on the toast or not. What you're doing is trivial. It probably isn't the most critical thing to get right. Just adjudicate and then assign one person to figure it out while we move on to let the next people go. I I guess generally, how do you feel about that? Do Do you think it's, okay for people to be like, okay, let's take a five-minute break. Okay, that's being ridiculous because I'm setting you up to say no. How long is too long to look up a rule to get it right versus just making a decision and then getting it right next time? I think that that's really going to depend on the way that you're going to look it up. Flipping through a book is going to be hard for that. If you're just going to go on like D&D Beyond and you know, if you're like, okay, we have suddenly all lost our minds. No one knows how grapple works. If you go to D&D Beyond and you type in grapple, you're going to get an answer in 20 seconds. Yeah. So if you have access to a digital resource like that that is easily searchable, 
maybe that is something. And again, I would I would sort of say that the stakes are kind of the gonna be my bellwether there. Like if we're in combat and like this is the difference between whether or not I can pin this dragon to the ground so that my friend can beat the tar out of it. Okay, I really want to know that right now. And I want to make sure that we do that good. I would say 30 seconds. Like if you can get it done in 30 seconds or less, great. I'll let you look it up right now because if it's something where we're going to need to do this, then yeah, I think what you said, just I'm going to adjudicate this the way that I want to. And then you're going to look it up so that we have the absolute gospel truth for next time. That's how I would absolutely put those two together. You look something up and people have different opinions about how to interpret the text of a rule. Always defer to the DM. Don't let rules arguments derail the game. You can always look it up again later and have that discussion after the session. But a mid-game rules argument isn't fun for anybody. All right. Well, I think that that's a pretty great segue. So as we're talking about digital things versus hardcover books and whatnot, so what do you actually need to have to get started DMing? And realistically, the answer is kind of just the rules. Do you have those in a physical thing like the, the PHP, the DMG? Do you have D&D Beyond? There's absolutely value in both, and there's drawbacks to both. And so the PHP being the player's handbook, the DMG being the Dungeon Master's Guide. Yes. Yeah. Nobody yeah. ever calls the Monster Manual the MM. They actually did. So in, in third edition, that was a, a more common convention because in 3.x, we had five of them. <laughs> um, MM1, MM2? Yeah, MM1, MM2. Did it in zero four. index? Okay. No. Well, because they just had the monster manual, and then Watsi and their infinite wisdom came up with the monster manual, too. Yeah. And then you had monster manual, A New Hope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and by the time you got to Revengeance, we were just way off the rails. <laughs> well, that was a callback to the previous editions where it was monstrous manual, monstrous manual, too. Like, they'd done that all the way back through, I think, first edition? Fifth edition is the first time where they actually said, we're not just going to call it Monster Manual 2. We'll come up with a more creative name. And they have explicitly said that it's, quote, not a monster manual. And Vol's Guide to Monsters, More in Kindness, Tome of Foes, etc. Monsters of the Multiverse. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, yeah, but digital copies, like you, you brought up a second ago, how easy it is to be able to go to D&D Beyond. I will say 100% that is when I have to solve one of these things and I think, okay, look, I should be able to get this right because my what I anticipate is that I'm just going to Google it and get an answer. It is always grapple, space, D&D Beyond, click, done. Yeah, and of course the Google search is generally going to work out better for that than the actual D&D Beyond search. Like D&D Beyond will give you a perfect text search of the entire site, but there is some question about whether or not it will actually get you where you want to go or if you're just going to find the grapple ability of the giant frog by accident. <laughs> yeah, now I know there are 98 monsters which can grapple, and that's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, there's absolutely benefits and drawbacks to both. Having the physical is a great way to just be like, all right, I know it's somewhere in the combat section, open it, flip through. You're going to be able to flip through things a lot easier than you're going to be able to like scroll through the way that D&D Beyond has things organized because sometimes it's all on one page, sometimes it's on separate pages. It's kind of a mishmash. But with that said, no matter how you have your books, well, I guess this only applies if you have physical books. A lot of times people, particularly veteran players who are maybe trying to DM for the first time, you probably have a decent quantity of books. Maybe you've got a whole shelf full of all kinds of pretty things. And realistically, you don't need most of those for DMing. You don't need most of those for the actual act of DMing a session. You're not going to go refer to something in Volos as like a rules adjudication, probably. 
you're not going to go refer to Eberron for a Faerun campaign, probably, unless someone casts Dream of the Blue Veil, in which case, you can tell your player to knock that off. <laughs> so we're playing Rhyme of the Frostman, and why, do you, why did you bring Descent into Avernus? It's like, well, what if we trip and fall through a portal of hell? I don't... <laughs> Stranger things that happen. Isn't that how that campaign starts? It might be. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, you want to travel light. The Player's Handbook and the Dungeon Master's Guide, that's going to answer 99 point something percent of all of your problems and everything else just adjudicate and look up later like we've talked about. The 5th edition Dungeon Master's Guide and the PF2 Game Mastery Guide are both excellent resources for Game Masters, but they're not resources that you want to use at the table. They have a lot of advice on how to run your game, which I strongly encourage you to read. They've got a lot of things like variant rules, tables on building monsters and building encounters. But if you're scrambling and putting together a monster in the middle of an encounter, maybe save that for when you get home. Yes, so the, the Game Mastery books can often stay home. The core rulebook for your game or the player's handbook for D&D will typically have the rules that you need, and digital copies of anything is going to save you a ton of time. It's, we should say, for D&D Beyond, D&D Beyond, by default, gives you access to the SRD, which stands for... Source Resource... Or system Resource Documents. Sys- system Resource Documents. System Reference Document. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Producer Dan, quick, cut it. Uh, the system <laughs> reference document. If you purchase content through D&D Beyond, so for instance, if you purchase the Player's Handbook, if you purchase the Dungeon Master's Guide through D&D Beyond, that's what's going to make it searchable. D&D Beyond also does have like a sharing feature so that you can bring people into a campaign and then share the resources so that everybody within that campaign has access. And that's something that, you know, as a group, you should have conversations with and figure out how to take advantage of that to the fullest. Uh, having that set up is then going to make getting to the details of the setting of Eberron a lot easier than needing to flip through the book. I think if you're trying to do something like this live. And if you're playing Pathfinder, the rules for Pathfinder are all available for free on Archives of Nethys, and then they're working on Pathfinder Nexus by the same people who build D&D Beyond. I think that's coming out soon-ish, sometime in the next couple months. Other games don't typically have as good software tools, but hopefully at least you've got PDFs that you can pull up on a laptop or something. Another thing that's useful in a game built around Click Clack Math Rocks. <laughs> Click Clack Math Rocks? Yeah. It, you no, want to have some of those. Yeah. And now, actually, with that said, if you don't, and for whatever reason you can't get to them, it is still actually possible to play this game. There's some kind of quick hacks that you can do that people have done on things like car trips, that sort of thing. You can just take a piece of paper, write all the numbers down, cut them up or uh, tear them up and put them into a hat. Just draw out like that. Do you have a D6 hat, a D12 hat, a D20 hat? I mean, you could, (laughs) although realistically, you know, like we've said, D20 is absolutely the primary mechanic. So if you just do a D21 and then just say to your players, and you do average damage with your rules, problem solved, same thing. Yeah, that, that's pretty fair. Maybe at that point, introduce something like the Pathfinder 2 critical success thing where, like, oh, I'll give you max damage on a crit. Sure, um, Or on a, a high enough success and then average the rest of the time. I'm also, I'm going to point out, I think it's really quaint and wonderful that you brought paper into this. <laughs> In a pen and paper role-playing game? <laughs> yeah, I think it's wonderful. I'll point out, we have supercomputers in our pockets these days. So that's true. Uh, any device that you have, you would be able to get to a random is just staring daggers at me right now. <laughs> no, I mean, most, most apps have, most apps, most operating systems for phones, the two of them at this point, have dice rolling apps that are available. Also, you can literally Google like roll D6 and Google will roll dice for you. 
I'm just saying that I'm I'm working off of stories of people, you know, deployed and playing D&D or in prison, mm-hmm. actually, and playing D&D, which you can't have dice because they don't want to promote gambling. Yeah. Sure. yeah, I've seen some really clever solutions in prison. People have built tops out of paper and like a toothpick and written the numbers on the top and you spin it. People are very, very inventive. I imagine most people listening to this podcast aren't going to be playing from prison. If you are deployed, yes, a folder full of slips of paper works great. <laughs> the the face palms, so many. Back in super early editions, they actually had trouble getting dice to print the D&D box sets because the only people making them were for teaching supplies. So it was like this one company making polyhedral dice as an educational product. D&D comes along and was like, we need all of your dice now and also more dice than you could possibly produce. So there was a while where the box sets would actually include envelopes with pieces of paper to cut out, putting the envelope to use as your randomizer. So all of this stuff has been done before, and it has worked historically. But yes, for a lot of people, a dice roller app on your phone is going to work great. If you're using a system that has a unique dice mechanic, like Shadowrun, Fate, Fantasy Flight Star Wars, The One Ring, anything that has custom dice, the company will typically have a dice roller app for their game. Usually you have to pay for them. Usually there's a free alternative. So look around, get what you need, but just having a basic dice roller app as a backup, even in case you just forget your dice when you go to play a game, always a great idea. This one is kind of optional to the degree to which you trust your players. Uh, A DM screen is very helpful to keep things that you don't want them looking at. It's absolutely not required. And realistically, it's five bucks a cardboard. If you've got a three-ring binder, set that up at an angle. That's great. If you've got a cardboard box, turn it up on one side, play in the cardboard box. Plus, you get to feel like you're, you know, playing with puppets. It's great. You can get really creative in just how you hide things from players if you want to at all. Let's talk about the things that you would want to hide from the players in order to give them a good game. So I'll say when I DM, what I tend to do is all the monsters I plan on my players encountering, I actually bring up on D&D Beyond. And then I just flip tabs as I need to. And if, I, you know, if they're finding two different monsters at once, I'll have them both open and visible. And I have that facing to where only I can see it, which means that I don't have the monster manual out. What I'll say is that if you are just doing this with a monster manual, if your players can clearly see it, and they're talking to this person, and they're having a great conversation, and then one of them wants to make an inside check, and you flip to the ancient red dragon. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's very much a thing that you, that you would want to keep hidden. And even if you are using the monster manual, do it later. This is very much a way where you can real-life bluff your players. Roll some dice, and say, yep, nothing, blah, blah, blah. Go look up later, see if you were right. <laughs> they'll never know they'll never know this is the great thing and this is one of the things in in which dungeons and dragons is really just like theater as cooperative storytelling they don't know what the play is they don't know the script it any change you make that's as far as they're concerned that's how it was meant to be that's exactly how i wrote the story that i you know painstakingly for the past month the other thing i'll say that i think is worth keeping hidden is like current monster hp I tend to take average monster HP with the understanding that I'm then going to maybe tweak at the end. So I've made the mistake a few times of letting a monster die very anticlimactically 
because technically it hit zero. And what I, I think I've internalized and learned is that I'll, let's go and get it to zero from average health, plus or minus. Like if you do a really awesome move, like you use a high level spell or you, you burn a maneuver and it ultimately leads to like this awesome damage and like it's cool and it's theatrical and it has five HP left, congrats, you killed it. Vice versa, if like, oh, you know, I, I went in and I, I got the unarmed strike in and that everything else missed and I dealt six damage as a monk. I might let it stand as long as the party's not in real danger. Well, let's just, let's see what happens next. Like, let's, <laughs> let's keep going a little bit to get something really awesome. I'm sorry, Monk, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, the, the current HP, I think, is definitely worth hiding because otherwise your players, you know, if, even if they're peaking and, and they only see it once, they can kind of then internalize like, okay, well, this is almost over. And so you start, as a player, you start metagaming instead of just enjoying the combat rounds. Yeah, absolutely. And a thing with that, so 5th edition doesn't technically have this, but this is, again, one of the two, three good things that I think 4th edition gave us. You're going to want to describe to your players how they're doing. We, we've talked about this a little bit before, but realistically, we're going to delve into what defines a game for a second. So <laughs> one of the things that a game design author whose work we will link in the show notes one of the ways that she defines a game is that it has to have a feedback system. If you're just swinging into these bags of hit points and you're not getting any feedback, you have no idea if your attacks are doing damage. You have no idea if maybe there's some kind of resistance, immunity that you're swinging into. Letting players know that in visceral, in-character ways is very satisfying and lets them be more tactical in their actions. If you want to talk about specifically the thing that I was going for, when a monster is bloodied. While it's no longer a mechanic in this edition, bloodied in 4th edition just meant below half health. And that's a really easy way for players to know, okay, we've put some good work onto this monster, let's finish this one off before we try and move on to something else, and maybe just take a quick second when you know an attack does bring up below half to describe, that last one took a good chunk out of it, roars in pain and sets its gaze on you looking like it's going to charge you soon something like that you know just a really easy way to describe okay you're doing it it's bloodied it's really not happy (laughs) so in addition to hiding stuff behind your dm screen your gm screen there are also typically tables on the back of those screens which can be very helpful The 5th edition DM screen has a lot of things like prices for things that your players might buy offhand, like food, trail rations, things like that. A lot of things that you would typically need to reference from a table are on there. I think the drowning rules might be on there. (laughs) (laughs) So, So stuff that you probably aren't going to memorize because it's just like, in a table or specific numbers, those are frequently going to be on your GM screen. Fantasy Flight Star Wars, the GM screen has the the tables of things that you can do with your boosts, setbacks, triumphs, and disasters. Is yeah, disasters. The one for the one ring has the benefits for the different combat stances and things like that, plus a, a big chunk of the journey rules. So those things that are going to be hard to memorize that you're going to be frequently looking up in the rule books are very frequently on the back of those DMGM screens. Even if you don't have anything to hide, those are frequently a great resource to have on hand for when you need to look things up. And in a lot of cases, they're also available as a digital copy. So 
obviously you can't put a PDF up as a DM screen, but it's very nice as a reference. But with the power of glue stick and cardboard, you can <laughs> put it up as a DM screen. And but, is it then a PDF? Well, it's a printed document. Actually, so that's but, another thing, right? If you are using a laptop as your primary reference, then yes, actually, you can, in fact. And <laughs> that's a, a laptop is a perfectly valid DM screen. It does hide information, and it's a good way to make sure that you have what you need available to you. You can go for other things, you know, if, if you want, you can have maps like the we've talked about before. If you're playing an in-person game, what year is it? You can absolutely make combat visualization easier by having some sort of map. Tyler is a, a very big fan of like the graph paper that you can just draw on, you know, the one inch grid graph paper. I really like the reusable fabric with the coating maps. I bought some grid maps at GaryCon. I'm very excited about those. Yeah, th- there are... There, I erase markable... Yeah, there are, like, the, that sort of map that I was talking about, but, like, pre-printed on, basically, paper that's laminated. So, like, you get the art under it, and then you can draw on it. There's lots of companies make those. I mean, they're generally the, the big ones, like your, your Watsi, your Paizo, they actually just make their own, but then also people other make them. Yeah, I guess at, at a high level, first time DM, you're running, let's say, a published adventure, and that's going to be the recommendation I'm going to make when we talk about this. Do you need to do grid combat if you're running 5e? No. no. Yeah. Asterisk. Yeah. I, I'm just going to say no, no, asterisk. <laughs> just no, you don't. Here's the thing. No is fine. And you can absolutely theater of the mind it. We're both being really bet hedgy on that because fifth edition is so very crunchy. And, and I mean, previous editions were even crunchier. D&D is such a combat-focused one. We've talked about this a lot. Yeah. It's the tempura battered edition versus our deep-fried editions of yore. Exactly. <laughs> that a lot of things kind of only make sense. You have to play the combat considering what it looks like on a grid. Even if you're just imagining it, you have to understand that I am leaving a safety donut because that's a huge rule. You have to understand, you know, like if I have a reach weapon, you need to know where everything within 10 feet of you is. That's important. And having a grid map, even if it's just, I'm going to pull out a piece of bog standard graph paper and I'm going to put down pennies to visualize things, that's going to help you a lot because especially if you are a first-time DM trying to like get all of this stuff in your brain, trying to adjudicate all of the shenanigans, having something to at least take one burden off of you of trying to visualize what's going on is going to help you a lot. No, I think that makes perfect sense. What I'll call out, physical maps are great, especially for a physical game. If you're doing this online, there's a lot of great online tools for doing the same thing, right? So we have Roll20, we have Foundry. I think by the summer you'll have Tabula Soto. You know, there's a there's a lot of really good solutions for building grids, building maps, a lot of pre-rendered stuff that you can use. And so for places where you know you're going to have combat, you know, if you're walking around a castle, you don't necessarily need a grid map for that castle, new DM. You can just describe it, walk through, give box text, especially if the adventure provides it to you. But if you know there's likely going to be combat in the throne room or there's going to be combat up the tower, you'll be able to find grids for those if you want to use them, whether that be live or whether it be through some online resource. If you're going to be playing without a grid, that is a perfectly valid way to play. 
but you may need to discuss that with your players and say, look, we're playing without a grid, so I won't be able to handle certain things. Like, if you're building a character to abuse opportunity attacks, things like that, you're going to want that grid. So maybe you just don't bring that character to this game. And just setting that expectation with your players beforehand will remove a lot of those problems and make theater of the mind work a lot better. Yeah, I think there's a lot of great things that we could actually say about do's and don'ts for your characters that you are bringing to a first-time DM. And as a first-time DM, maybe you should put like some limitations on what your players bring to you. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, this is a great reason to have a session zero. We talk about this a lot. Don't listen to the session zero episode. But realistically, as a first-time DM, your DM, if you are not the DM or you as a DM, like I said before, they're going to have a lot on their plate. And bringing, you know, some three different class, abuse some mechanic monstrosity is unkind. Making, making your DM look up whether or not coffee locks are actually allowed <laughs> at the first session. Right. Yeah. D- don't. Just, just don't do that. Right. You know, we're all here to have fun. And there can absolutely be some fun in that kind of competitive Dungeons and Dragons. You know, Tyler and I famously do this to each other a lot. Yes. The first time DM is not the place for that. And so as, as the first time DM, please, please have a session zero. Lay out kind of everything that you are going to say, like, I will take this, I will not take this, please be kind. And, and like we've talked about in the episode, you know, you want to say, like, here's the adventure, try and make something that's going to fit. Here's, like Tyler was talking about, like, I just can't do a grid for whatever reason, so try to, you know, stay away from something that cares about the grid so much and just go from there. Yeah. Another thing I'll say, so we had a great podcast where we described or we discussed the topic what level should you be running your one-shots? What level should you be running your game? I think whether this be a one-shot or a long-running campaign, you as a first-time DM, that is a wonderful reason to just start with level one characters. Absolutely. Because they can't be that complicated. Things can't go off the rails so much that they're not controllable. You know, I don't care if at the end of the session you're like, congratulations, everybody's level three. You did it. Because it helps you get the confidence. It helps you understand where you're going, how you're players want to play their characters so that when you come back for that next session in the campaign, everything's going to be a lot tighter, better put together. If you're running an adventure, like a a published campaign, a published module, uh, likely there's going to be recommendations about what levels you should be at. And if you're running a one-shot, you should probably be choosing a one-shot that allows lower-level characters, because generally lower-level characters are going to be less complex to adjudicate things for as a DM. Yeah, and then one thing you may actually want to consider is just writing up the characters yourself so that you know what mechanics you're going to be dealing with. Particularly if you also have a lot of new players, this can actually be a way to help ease them into the game, but it's also a way to just remove some of the pile of randomness and stuff that you have to think about. So if you just want to give your party like, great, here's your fighter cleric wizard rogue, go. Now, this can be one of the things that you do talk about in a session zero. That was four different characters. That was not one character. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) if you're a masochist, you can absolutely, but no. Yeah, well, what Randall said was absolutely right. Um, But this is one of the things that you could really reasonably cover in that session zero. Say, hey, I've got a lot going on. I want to make characters so that I know both kind of the, the power level that I can expect and so that I can build them more functionally into my world. 
And it, that is a great way to sell this because that's absolutely true, right? And then you just have to deliver on it later. When you write the characters, you more effectively control the narrative. So there are some pre-published modules that actually do that. If you've listened to our Gary Khan new stuff, so as I was wandering, I came across a company that does a really big, really inclusive box that is the adventure, all like item cards for all of it, maps for all of it, and characters for all of it. And that really helps the characters fit into the narrative because when you know what they are, then you know how to build the story around them. That's the thing that you can talk to your players about in a session zero. Say, hey, are you cool with this? If so, great, that's going to make it easier for me. And we're going to go like this. The one thing I'll say is that that might be a better thing to do if you know you're only running a one shot. Like, okay, look, this one game, you're going to play the character, or you're going to choose from four characters because I kind of need this to get going. But once you've established that and you say, okay, good, everybody had a great time. We're going to turn this into a campaign. That might be a wonderful opportunity to just say, hand wave, bring your own characters next time. It'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Bring your own characters. Or, you know, you could say, I like the narrative that I've built off of these personalities. So, you know, if you enjoyed that personality, great. And instead of Bilbo the Thief Rogue, you're now Bilbo the Gnome Barbarian. Great. Nailed it. (laughs) I don't know what happened. If you're looking at DMing for the first time and you're hearing us say like, yes, bring the players pre-gen characters. If you're thinking, oh gosh, now I have to make pre-gen characters. Don't worry about it. There are plenty available for free online. For 5e, there are pre-gen characters for free on DMs Guild running all the way from 1st to 20th level. And they use the class options from the SRD. So those are generally the mechanically simplest characters. So they're very easy to pick up and play. They're very easy on the DM. A lot of published one-shots for other systems will include will include pre-generated characters. Paizo famously does something cool for free RPG day every year. I ran their Little Trouble and Big Absalom adventure recently and includes both the adventure and six pre-generated characters that you can just pass out to the players. Take that burden off yourself. Let somebody else do it for you. Yeah, and so actually, when we played Big Trouble and Little Absalom, that was my second time playing PF2. And it was awesome to pick a character because I actually had a hard time understanding how to build a character until I got my hand on the core rulebook. And so just having, even as a player, having that character handed to me was fantastic to play because I got to see how the druid worked. I had this beautiful cat named Precious, and it was wonderful. Precious the house cat slash tank. Yes, oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, that was a murder cat. All right, well, so we've, we've hinted at it a few times during the podcast here. One of the things that I really personally strongly recommend if you're going to start DMing, start small. Run a, a one-shot, maybe run like a, a you know three-shot that's meant to be played over a course of 10 hours or something. I know that a lot of times people want to get into DMing because they have this idea in mind for this epic story, this epic campaign, and they they want to share that with people. And that's awesome. Like, I fully believe that your story is going to be great. Your players are going to love it. And your first time DMing is 100% not the place to introduce it. You are going to have a ton going on. You're going to need to get experience because what you have is a book. And what players do is not a book. And until you are comfortable with improvising on the fly for okay, well, here's the prince of this land who, as far as my story was concerned, was going to be the primary plot point 
he's gonna get married to someone who is secretly a demon and then she takes the kingdom and like drags it down to the abyss and oh god my players just killed him uh, <laughs> oh no right so this is why you really want to get your feet under you running something like a one shot now you can write it yourself if you want to just make sure that you write about two hours of content we'll get to that in a moment or there's a ton of one shots that you can pick up for free like tyler talked about that you can buy if you really like the the sound of one run something short get your feet under you and then keep going so by the way improv dm sitting at home the right answer is the prince had a younger brother steps up marries the demon campaign goes on <laughs> I have had people DM their forced. I have also had people DM Forza. It was crazy. <laughs> I was a car. <laughs> I have had people DM for the first time with me as a player, and I always really love that experience. I've had people run one shots. I've had people, sorry, I've had people run published modules. I've had people run things that they created themselves, and both have been great, but the people who created things themselves. I always encourage them to keep the story very, very simple because that does make things a lot easier your first time. I've had DMs that were completely thrown off by things like, what do you mean your AC is 19? Which, not a difficult AC to have in 5th edition, but was still enough that it threw off the balance of all of their encounters. So it was a great learning experience. But expect to be surprised your first game. Even if you've been playing for a long time, things feel very different from the other side of the table sometimes. So those surprises that your players are going to throw at you, it, yeah, absolutely knock you off track. So in particular, when we talk about published modules, a resource that I'm going to recommend is the Adventure Elite catalog. They have this idea of the mini dungeons where, you know, there's a few rooms to go through. There's like one map, maybe two maps for you to look at. You can literally search for, I want a party of four level one adventurers or five level one adventurers, you know, pick any level, and you'll find a bunch of modules. So let's say you have a little story you want to tell. You can easily find one of these mini dungeons, have mechanically everything worked out for you, appropriate monsters for them to fight in the adventure, appropriate traps, triggers, these sorts of things for them to hit. Because if you're going to screw anything up as a dungeon master your first time, it isn't going to be the story. It's going to be the mechanics. So adopting something like one of these mini dungeons, letting that lay out everything mechanical for you, and then glue a little story on top of it that you want to tell, it kind of gives you the best of both worlds, and it's going to come across to your players like you really put this thing together well. Now, And one of the things that I'm going to say, so once you have picked your, your mini dungeon, your published module, or written your own stuff, read it thoroughly. This particularly matters if you're playing something you 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 know got from somebody else there's very few things that feel worse than when dan's like oh god something else was supposed to happen a little bit ago and it did it breaks the the story if i don't so i guess we're, we're going to time travel back a room and then like that kind of immersion breaking is not great now if you have to you have to, and your players will be hopefully accommodating because you're playing with decent folks who understand that it's your first time DMing. Great. But really, one of the things that I cannot stress enough, read your stuff thoroughly, because that's going to give you the context that you need to improvise. And generally, if you're reading a published module, it's not going to be a ton of reading. The amount of text to run a single session is between like five and ten pages at most. So it's you're not going to be reading a novel. You don't have to memorize a ton of things. 
you don't have to stress that much about it. As you are reading through, you will get into the mechanics. Be very comfortable with the mechanics of whatever that primary focus is. So if this is a just your standard dungeon crawl, but let's say it's a dungeon crawl in a dark cave, get real familiar with light, how light works. You know, the difference between dim light, how dark vision works in 5th edition, because it's not how dark vision worked in 3.x. Or, you know, if you are, like, running your own thing and it's, like, primarily social, get real comfortable with target DCs for diplomacy. Get real comfortable with telling players contested roles like, yes, you know, diplomacy versus wisdom insight, all that good jazz. So as you read through, as you pick up the mechanics, go check that out in the DMG. Go check that out in the PHB. That'll make you very confident. And confidence, really where I want to go here. Even if you aren't 100% sure of something, present it. Just be like, you know what? We're going to do it this way. Your confidence will make the players comfortable. Even if you are being confident about something that you're not sure of, be confident like that. And then say, we're going to do it this way. We'll go look it up later. And as long as you are consistent in how you do that, even if you do look it up after the session, but you're like, okay, well, I'm not exactly sure how we're going to grapple this time. But it's going to be based on nature because it's a tree hug. (laughs) As long as you make it the same thing every time, there will be that sense of fairness, and that's going to get buy-in from your players. What Random's really trying to say is your players can smell fear. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And and again, hopefully you're playing this with friends. That's actually one of the things that we really want to recommend. Don't try to first-time DM with strangers. You can. It's way harder. Your friends are going to be some, are going to be people who are there to support you, who will provide feedback because, you know, there is that mutual trust. And so they understand you are doing your best. And here is something that I can provide. Like, even if they don't know the system very well, they can absolutely provide you feedback on the experience, right? So this is like, you froze up here. And I know that it maybe didn't seem like a lot of time for you. But when you were looking at this thing, that was like five minutes that helpful reminder can be very good. And hopefully, again, these are your friends, so they'll deliver it in a kind manner. Yeah, I mean, your friends have a vested interest in talking to you ever again. Yes. And so ideally, you're going to be able to get through that situation in a way that ultimately makes everybody comfortable and makes you a better DM. And a tip for keeping things on track while you're running the game, get copies of everyone's character sheets ahead of time. It's pretty easy if you're giving them pre-gens, you just scan another copy. But Having access to things like their passive skills, passive perception, passive insight, and their armor class. So you're not constantly asking, hey, hand me your character sheet so I can look at this number again on your character sheet. That will save you a ton of time during play. It'll help you stay focused and it'll help you stay comfortable. And and yeah, use those passive skills. If somebody has a super high passive perception, like, let it go. They don't need to make chicks in every room in order to, to nail the thing that your module said they had to be there for. That's exactly why it's there. You're not ruining the fun of the game. You are giving them the advantage that that character offers. Uh, the other thing I'll say for this more generally is don't, you know, oh, you know, there's skill checks in this game. There's lots of skill checks in this game. So I'm going to make you skill check for everything. Don't do that. It can be extremely derailing. It can take things, you know, way down. And especially if you're like, you know what? There's no way they're going to fail my DC 10 check to do this mandatory thing that has to happen, like climbing stairs. Therefore, I make everybody roll and they fail. And now we're stuck at the bottom. Nobody can go anywhere. Don't do that. Yeah, that, that's, that's a, a really important thing. And one thing that I want to touch on that Randall just brought up. So passive skills, 
So a really interesting thing that we glean from the D&D Beyond, which remember is like officially WOTC approved, that's, this is how this works. If you have advantage on one of the skills that has a passive, your passive goes up by five because that's just what advantage does to the math. If you have, say, a passive perception of 10, but you get advantage on perception from a source, your passive perception is 15 for as long as you have that advantage. Just that's something that gets missed a lot. So keep that in mind. All right. I think we did it. So this is part one. Thank you for joining us for the second part of our first time DMing episode arc. All right, Tyler, what's been going on? Well, last time we talked about getting ready to run your first session as a DM or GM. Today, we're going to continue with that advice. We're going to go into actually running the session, potentially turning that into a long-form game, if you're lucky enough to do that, and offer advice on how to do those things, how to take feedback and improve based on those things. And we're going to give you some tools and advice to help you be successful on both. Absolutely. So we talked about the right idea is starting with a one shot, we think. And, and we think that because we're right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, when you have this much experience, pride goeth. No. But I mean, realistically, there's a lot of good reasons that we did talk about some of them. Once you've picked your story, you've got all your resources, you've got your prep, you've got your players, they've got their characters. Now you need to actually run a game. And there's a lot of things that go into that. If you have had your session zero, you're going to know what your players are looking for in terms of how much do we want to role play? How much do we want to just throw dice at each other? Because clickety-clack math rocks. And there are some great examples of published one-shots. We've talked about Little Trouble and Big Absalom. We've talked about Wild Sheep Chase. Tyler will absolutely love talking your ear off about those in a second. <laughs> but when you go into that, you know, you want to look at those and see, okay, how much is there going to be role play? How much is going to be exploration? How much is it going to be combat? Combat takes a long time. And particularly if you're going into this as a new DM, like new to the system, new to playing tabletop role-playing games, combat takes much longer than you think. Tyler, who has been doing this for a very long time, tried to run a, a one-hour one-shot for myself and a couple other people some months back. at an hour and 20 minutes, <laughs> we still hadn't finished the last room of combat that was supposed to happen before we got to the rest of the plot. Just because even with players, you know, and, and th this was for experienced players, like, but combat just takes a long time. So as you're trying to plan for how long is it going to take, just add half an hour or an hour to whatever you think, because the worst case scenario, you're going to end up hanging out and talking about it which is awesome. That's something you should do anyway. Yeah, that's really good advice. We have some articles on the site, both my practical guide to one-hour sessions, which that game was researched for, and then an article that I wrote after that, the practical guide to running fast combat, which was very informative for me to research and write. Hopefully you'll enjoy it too as either an experienced DM or a novice DM. But there, there are resources to make these things go faster, but Random's absolutely right. You should plan for combat to take a lot longer than you expect, especially if your players like to roll garbage like I do and are just always rolling single digits. No one can hit each other, and eventually everyone gets tired and goes home instead of actually finishing the combat. Yeah, it's really depressing when the monsters just quit. Like, I've, I've hit third-level exhaustion watching you roll bad, and I'm going to have to leave the room now. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think, you know, we talked about this idea of session zero and getting together and talking about what do folks really want to get out of this. And so for your first session that you're going to run, having a good idea, like if, if what they want is a lot of RP, then maybe it's okay if you have combat, but you choose lower CR monsters so that they roll through the combat quickly. Uh, something I know we've said, but I don't know if we hammer on well enough. In 5e at least, combat on average is supposed to last three rounds. Yes, generally three to five. Yeah. The CR is actually calculated for a monster. The offensive CR component is calculated on what is the maximum amount of damage that can be done in three rounds of combat. You know, it's actually kind of baked into the difficulty of the game. Now, that being said, if you dial that CR back just a little bit, shaving that from three to five rounds down to two to three rounds max lets you have combat, which is a central part of the game, but lets you get onto the RP more quickly. If the players are players who really like combat, but they want lots of combat because you could tell they got bored the one time you had them go for six rounds in combat, same game. You can, you can have lower CR monsters in order to let them move through more quickly. Vice versa, if what they love is like epic challenges, then it makes sense if in your hour and a half long session, 50 minutes of it is this long drawn out epic fight against some CR creature that really challenges them. Yeah, and one thing I'm going to say about that, if you do choose to go the let's tone the CR down a bit route, be aware that that's going to make your players not expend resources. And so you could, and if this is a one shot, that's not a big deal, right? You're, you're probably, you're maybe going to have a rest anyway. So maybe that's not a problem. But just be aware that like, if you are trying to build that into your typical ongoing campaign, then that's something that you're going to have to say, okay, you know, for the one shot, we did this. I am going to have to tune in a little bit differently. Um, I definitely want you guys to keep having fun and you should tell me if this stops being fun. Hey, wait, I'm, you know, getting ahead of myself again. That's something that as a first time DM, especially be aware that if they're not expending resources, they may just keep going. And so it's important to figure out how to provide them a challenge, which is still meaningful enough that they have to, you know, spend those spell slots, spend those abilities. Another thing that I want to talk about on the story side of things, in a long-running campaign, you will often set up so that the culmination of a session is a plot hook or a reward, which is going to benefit them in the next session. If you know you are playing a one-shot, maybe building in halfway through that reward, like a new item, a spell scroll, something that would be fun, that can then be used in the culmination is a better mechanism of storytelling than getting the reward at the end. Because sincerely, like at the end, you might as well say you found infinite gold, right? Just it's an infinite pile of gold. It's a gold producer. Why? We're never coming back to this world anyway. Well, and, and so there's, you know, there's a couple ways to take that. First off, to your first point, one of the cool things that that can do is if you provide them an item which requires attunement, that can force a rest, which has some, you know, then we, we've talked about things like when people are resting, there's like role play opportunities and that sort of jazz. But if you do decide to, like we talked about in the last half of this, if you decide to take those characters, take that story into a long running, then yeah, you know, provide something that's going to be meaningful for the campaign you intend to, to take them into. There's a lot of really good examples of this being done both very well and very poorly in published one shots. We've talked about Little Trouble and Big Absalom as a great one shot for, for Pathfinder 2nd Edition. And it, it makes the exact mistake of giving you all of the treasure right at the end of the adventure. 
the intent of them doing that is they give you this big pile of treasure, including a bunch of expendable items like, like alchemist fire, and then a really hard fight where you're supposed to use all of those things. But that isn't communicated super well, and the players are encouraged to be selfish and take all the items for themselves, which is exactly what happened last time I ran it. The party's rogue found all the treasure, took all of the treasure, and then ran. So the, part, the party was nearly TPK'd by lawn crawfish. Correct. Yes. Yes. Lawn crawfish. Yep. I, yes. Exactly what you think they are. Yep. Not large lobsters. Lawn crawfish. <laughs> yep. They speak with a Gajan accent. <laughs> Otherwise, excellent adventure. Little Trouble in Big Absalom is a great one shot for PF2. If you've never played or run it before, comes with good pregen characters, good mix of mechanics. It does a really good job of hitting the core concepts of dungeon fantasy, so your exploration, interaction, combat. The first half of the adventure is you're exploring a terrifying dungeon, which is some old lady's basement. And then you have a really nice role-playing encounter with an NPC. And then you do a little more exploration, and there's combat interspersed throughout the whole thing. So it does a really good job. You literally skip the best part. The cookies? Cookies, absolutely. Yeah. If you're a DM and you're running this one-shot, bake cookies. Pro tip. Uh, for 5th edition D&D, I really like the Wild Sheep Chase. It's available on DMs Guild, and we'll have links in the show notes. It's a really light-hearted, short adventure. Starts with a goofy NPC. The plot is a little silly. I think you play it 3rd or 4th level, so that, is, that may be a challenge for a first-time DM. But it's also that kind of sweet spot where characters start feeling really cool. There's a little bit of combat. You get to explore a nice little map, it, and it's it's a very short read. I think the whole PDF is like four pages, so it's very easy to pick up and run. A lot of other RPGs will include a short adventure in the core rulebook. So all of the Fantasy Flight Star Wars games have a short adventure in the core rulebooks, and there's three for the various versions of the game. The One Ring has a short adventure in it. The in the core rules, it, that's becoming more and more common. So generally, that adventure is a great place to start, both as a one-shot session and to hit all of the core concepts of that game set. And in fact, it's, it's probably worth mentioning, a lot of systems, so let's take 5e, right? 5e has the minds of... Fandelver. Thank you. I'm never going to pronounce it correctly, and I accept that. All right, you have the, the minds of Fandelver. Did it! All right, the, <laughs> the minds of Fandelver... As an intro, where the rules are a little bit pared back, the adventure is well laid out. If nobody at your table has played it, even if they're experienced players, as a DM, it's a great module to run. PF2 has a starter. Yeah, the starter kit for Pathfinder 2nd Edition is basically a tutorial built as a dungeon crawl. And it's decently fun to play. It's really easy to run, and it introduces a new mechanic in basically every room, so you learn as you play. There's some fun puzzles in there. There's some decent encounters. We have we have a guide on the website for running it and like polishing off some of the rough edges of the adventure. But yeah, if you're going to play Pathfinder 2nd Edition, Starter Kit's a great place to start. Yeah, the One Ring 2nd Edition just published has a Starter Kit to come with it. I, I'm saying this to emphasize like all of these systems, many of these systems have Starter Kits, which are fantastic ways to get started. But beyond that, yeah, like Big Trouble at Little Epsilon was a fun story that also gave me a great impression of like what Pathfinder 2 is and kind of what it's about. You know, I have to say like D&D 5e feels like, you know, Batman dark and brooding and like, uh, 
Whereas the Pathfinder is like, nah, this is going to be great. We're going to give you goblin grenades. <laughs> Have fun, you know? It, it definitely depends on who's running the game. But it, yes, there are absolutely goblin grenades. There are spoon guns. PF2 can get wacky. Yeah. And it's fun. Like, it, it is great. Well, so... One of the things that, if you, particularly if you have read or go read the guide to one-hour sessions, uh, so Five Room Dungeons, he's a, a big fan of. In fact, that's what he ran for us for that, that test case. And they're really good. It's a great way to lay out things to get that little mix of everything while still making it through pretty quickly without having to feel like, oh, I, I need to make this whole enormous dungeon, to, you know, because like this, this can be the puzzle area and, and this can be like all these monsters. So even just keeping things very short, like one instance of everything, can feel really fun. Yeah, Five Room Dungeons are great as a tool for both writing a one-shot and for just planning out your session. So the concept of the Five Room Dungeon is you have an entrance slash guardian, so that that will be like some difficulty to get into the dungeon. A puzzle or role-playing challenge, which be like you have a high-stakes interaction with an NPC or you solve a puzzle, go see our puzzles episode. The third room is the trick slash setback. So maybe the party is ambushed. Maybe they're hit by a trap. Maybe they realize some piece of crucial information was incorrect. But the ways to interpret this are many and varied. Fourth room is the climax slash boss. So this is like the climax of your session. You're going to have some big climactic fight or there will be some big crazy reveal like Darth Vader is your dad. Surprise. And then room five is the reward at the end of the session, which doesn't necessarily mean like, here's a pile of treasure. It could be like, I have saved the princess and I am rewarded by having done that. So the concept originates from this guy named John Four, who runs roleplayingtips.com. Great website. If you go to the website, he's got like a 500 page PDF with five room dungeon ideas in it, which I've used so many times. So I strongly recommend that. Awesome. So we've talked about a few different stories, right? Uh, Little Trouble and Big Epsilon. Uh, we've talked about Wild Sheep Chase. We've talked about the structure of Five Room Dungeon, some of the starter kits. Ultimately, what do these have in common that are going to help a first-time DM be successful? It's hitting the fundamental concepts of your game system in a kind of bite-sized chunk. So for 5th edition, well, for all of D&D, the three pillars of D&D are exploration, social interaction, combat. So your five-room dungeon gives you room for a couple of fights, some exploration, some interaction with either a puzzle or an NPC or something like that. So you get a little bit of each of those three pillars in your one session. Most sessions that you run, you want to hit all three of those things in, in not necessarily equal amounts, but a little bit of everything. You'll have some sessions that are all interaction or some that are all combat or some. Anyway, and other games, like especially outside of the dungeon fantasy genre, will have different conceptual pillars that you want to hit in a given session. But those starter kits, those demo adventures, the published one-shots, those will frequently hit all of those core concepts and give you an idea of what you want to shoot for for a satisfying session. Another thing that I'll say that's fantastic about them is, for the most part, they're fairly brief. You can get through them in two to three hours versus a long six-hour session. Another thing, folks who have played the game for a long time love to sit down for all-day adventure, eat two meals together, you know, get through all the beer and nachos. And this first time as a DM coming through, especially if it's new players to the game, I think you're ultimately going to have better luck creating a long-running campaign 
if you leave them wanting more versus if at the end of it, the thing they remember is, yes, I had fun, and also I was exhausted. Let's see. The 5th edition D&D starter set is a bit longer than a lot of starter sets. Generally, your starter sets will run one to two sessions, which is enough to get your feel for the game, get, a, get your handle on the mechanics, understand how the game works, all those things. The D&D 5th edition starter set is a full, like, it runs you from levels one through four. So it's a, it's a, I mean, it's not a super long campaign, but I'd expect like three to six sessions out of it, definitely. If you're using the 5th edition Essentials Kit instead, especially with the follow-up adventures, that'll run you all the way to level 12. Your mileage may vary on how long they run, but generally a starter set is designed to be run in one to two sessions, with 5th edition being the weird exception. Yeah, and that's why, realistically, rather than trying to go with the starter kit for that, that's why we're recommending something like just grab a five-room dungeon, grab one of the Adventure Week mini-adventure mini-dungeons, grab something short, because... Even just that D&D starter kit can feel like a big commitment. All right, so you have survived your first session as a DM. I am going to make the argument it is now time for a proper feedback session. And really, if you're a new DM, one of the tools that you should have in your bag as a new DM, we always talk about session, session zero, something you should add to your session zero is the idea of feedback. Let folks know you're comfortable receiving it, you want to get it, Tell me what you like. Tell me what you didn't like. We have this technique that, that folks use, a lot of folks listening are probably familiar with, of like a, a start, stop, continue retrospective. What this is, is what should we start doing? Like what problems did we face that we think if we started doing this, it would help, solving, help solve the problem? That might be as simple as players have an idea of what you're going to do on your turn. Don't figure it out as soon as it comes to you. You know, give some thought to it. On the DM side, it might be pre-rolling initiative because it took too long to roll, you know, getting set up for monster for combat took too long. There are ideas that we could start doing. Stop is, okay, what wasn't working? What are the things that we tried that we've decided, like, this is terrible? And it, yeah, I guess, what are some good examples of things you might stop doing? I got to listen to a fun panel at GaryCon where someone was describing part of the design process for 3rd edition. And part of the design process for 3rd edition, there were some classes they could make saves to avoid magic missile. And that was one of the universally hated rules that in all the player feedback, they were just like, no, no, get rid of this. It's terrible. Magic (laughs) missile should always hit. So, you know, if you happen to introduce that into your game, stop it. Yeah, actually, that is a great example. Like, I'm going to let you bring in that unearthed arcana, but I'm no, no, no longer. (laughs) We've decided we're going to re-earth that. (laughs) (laughs) If you're using homebrew rules, this is a great time to discuss them. Start, stop, continue. Like you might say, okay, we hit a very specific problem with the homebrew rule or table rule, whatever, whichever variation of things you're calling it and using. You might say, okay, we need to stop using this rule because it's causing X problem. Maybe you're using a variant initiative system and you've decided that it horribly advantages all of the monsters and that makes combat impossible. So you say, okay, let's stop doing that. Just go back to how it, how it's written in the rules. It could just be things that you're doing to run the game. Like maybe maybe you as the DM really like to use music, but you don't realize that you're playing the music way too loud so the players can't hear you talk. Like that's that's good feedback and shouldn't hurt anybody's feelings. Maybe you give someone feedback at the table like, hey, maybe don't eat a ton of garlic right before we sit down. Yeah. What if you showered daily? I'm just uh, <laughs> out. Also, let me introduce you to my friend Dealer. No. <laughs> I yeah, I think 
for the social parts of it, I, I think that is important. And these are good feedback. I'd say those very personal ones are maybe best given one-on-one. But I think at the table, getting folks prepped ahead of time to know that you want feedback on the back end and then directly asking for it is really going to help you be successful. And the nicest part of start, stop, and continue is continue. And what I'll say to players, what I'll say to DMs is really take advantage of the continue because I'm going to throw a bunch of stuff at you. And if your favorite thing are the voices that I did or your favorite thing are the the scripts that I did or like I went to describe and I pulled a bunch of box text and then I, I read this to you and you're like, that was awesome and I really love how you applied it. I don't know that you love that unless you give me that feedback directly. If you're worried about hurting somebody's feelings, you know, we've all heard of the compliment sandwich. While I really like the compliment sandwich, it's very effective at providing some good feedback, making sure that you do provide that. I will say that it's been shown to be something that the players just, not the players, but like the, the person receiving it, kind of, they, they, they understand what's going on, and so they just pick the negative out of it. But with that said, I think that it really does a great job of making sure that, you know, you are at least taking the time to think about what was good so that you can provide that. And, and I think in this setting, like, I'm, I want you to make me the sandwich. I want to be very clear. I want a club sandwich, right? Like I want a compliment and then some turkey and then a compliment and then some ham and then another compliment because that's ultimately like that's going to taste a lot better is all I'm saying <laughs> than if you put the turkey and the, the turkey and the ham are the negative comments, by the way. But if you put the turkey and the ham and then all of a sudden you stick some salami in there too, like that, it could hurt feelings. But no, I think getting folks prepared to receive that, I should say that differently, getting folks prepared to give you the negative feedback and then preparing yourself to receive it is extremely important. Because let's look at it this way. If folks aren't having a good time, or if there's a particular aspect of the game that just needs to change for them to the point where they decide, look, I just, I'm not going to play anymore, that's a much worse outcome than you hearing something that's a little hard to hear and then adapting your game. Part of what I'll say for this is if you are asking people to give you this feedback, you do need to be prepared to change. Or to have a discussion to, you know, the, you know, five wise technique. Can we dive a little deeper to understand what aspect of it, you know, really bothered you? I think Tyler gave a great example a moment ago. You know, if somebody says, well, I I didn't really like the music. Okay, cool. Is it the style of music? Is it the pacing? And and if it comes down to, it's like, well, it's just too loud. So it's hard to understand you. Oh, okay, cool. That's That's fixable. I can turn the volume down. If the problem is the style of music, you can find something else. And if the person's just like, no, I, just, I, I hate music in a session. I, I don't enjoy it whatsoever. Okay, cool. Let's talk around the room. If three of the players loved it, one person hated it. Maybe it's something you compromise on. You don't do it all the time, but for key social settings, you do it. But really diving into kind of what is going to help everybody enjoy it and adapting what you do is going to be better. Another thing we talked about before, like you have this cool story you want to tell, and then they meet the NPC, which you want to be you know, let's say the villain or a key partner, something like this, and they hate the NPC. It's like, okay, what did you hate about the NPC? You know, is it something, could you redeem the NPC? Do you need to introduce a new character to kind of carry that thread forward and maybe have it be something more in line with what they would like? Getting that feedback is going to help you tell a better story. Yes, and being gracious about the feedback that you're getting is really, really important here. Feedback should always be constructive. You want it to be constructive criticism, emphasis on constructive, 
understand that these are these are probably your friends at the table who are trying to help you improve. And even if they say something that like you might not agree with, they are generally trying to be very helpful. If you are the player at the table giving your DM feedback, be constructive, offer suggestions for things that might improve the situation. If you go in with just like, I don't like X, but you don't have a better idea, maybe give some thought to that idea. Maybe you do still give them that feedback and then discuss with with your DM, maybe with the table, like what can we all do to improve this thing? Because the goal is for everyone to have more fun. Yeah, I would say uh, towards that, if you really don't know what you would do to make it better, let's say it's a particular mechanic that was introduced and you don't want to not have the mechanic. Let's say we're talking variant rules and let's say you're doing gritty realism and you're playing a sorcerer and it's really killing you to not get your sorcery points back. But you don't know what you could do except for like maybe you as a character play by normal rules and everybody else doesn't. I guess the solution here is probably pretty easy. Let's pretend it isn't easy. (laughs) But, But that being said, I think even acknowledging, look, I'm not really enjoying this aspect of what we've done and I don't have a better solution right now. Just being open and honest about I don't have a better solution right now or I don't have a good idea of what to do to fix this. I think if I'm receiving that feedback, I'm going to take it a lot better because you're not throwing it at me. You're making an acknowledgement that it's a hard problem. And so you're implicitly telling the DM it's okay that you didn't fix this off the first bat or that it isn't working perfectly. That's acceptable because I don't know what I would do either. That's a lot easier feedback to hear, I think. Yeah, and one of the the things about this sort of feedback, particularly if you are going to turn this into a long-running campaign, or, you know, this information about feedback is valuable even to a long-time DMs who are, you know, running long-time campaigns, getting that feedback conversation going outside the table can help a lot. That can help some people don't feel comfortable with giving something to you, just, like, look you in the eyes and tell you, your game was garbage, which hopefully Please don't give that feedback. Yeah. Right. <laughs> hopefully they're going to come up with a more diplomatic and constructive way of giving you the information that made them think that. But my point is like, you know, if you want to have this conversation in a discord server, in a, a Facebook group chat, in a, a group text, if you know, it's still 2002 where you are, then that can be a really helpful way to both reduce some of the anxiety of the in-person feedback giving. And also when someone says, hey, you know, I, I hated gritty realism, I don't have a good answer, that's a way to get the rest of your players engaging. You know, particularly if you have that veteran player in your group who's like, okay, well, so I did play with gritty realism once and the sorcerer also had that problem and we fixed it X, Y, Z. That can be a, a really useful way to engage people and to keep people interested between sessions, right? You know, if, if that's like, hey, um, you know, our, our session's on Sundays and by Tuesday, let, you know, just uh, have a start stop continue that we post in the Discord, and then congratulations. We, you know, we can talk about that, and and we can maintain engagement with the story throughout the week. Improv Dungeon Master, what you do is you allow sorcery points to restore as they normally would after a long rest, but still your spell slots don't come back and until like the weeks go by, as it would be for a typical gritty realism. So let's say you're you've run your one shot. It's gone awesome. Everyone's very excited. You want to keep DMing. So let's talk about ongoing games. If you as the DM enjoyed your first time running the game, you enjoyed your one shot, maybe you've got new players who want to come back for the first time, then 
you might be lucky enough to turn this into an ongoing game. Now, this is both the, the blessing and the curse of being a DM. Congratulations, you've got a new game going. Be very excited. Also, oh no, I have to write an ongoing game now. What do I do? So, <laughs> so the advice for running a longer form game is slightly different from running a one shot because they are typically more involved. You have ongoing plots. Things that you do in a previous session have implications for future session. If you give your player a plus three sword instead of a plus one sword, they now have a plus three sword at level two. What are you going to do? So there are some additional considerations. If you're running a published module, a long form published adventure, you're more likely going to need to carry some more books to the session. So you're going to need to carry your adventure. You're going to need to carry probably at least the core rules. Your players, someone might need to bring some rule supplements that have like additional character options. So like in D&D, Xanathars, Tasha's, etc. In Pathfinder 2nd Edition, whoever brings... Whoever brings a gunslinger to the party has to bring guns and gears. Just make that their problem. Um, if you can, try to make players bring their own books to support whatever character they're playing. But I understand like a lot of groups like to share books, especially if you're using D&D Beyond or something. And of course, if you're doing it digitally, it's less of a problem anyway. Yeah, I will say, as the DM, particularly with the big focus on milestone leveling, that's going to help you a lot. Like, you know, okay, we're probably going to get to around here this session. We're probably going to get to around here this session after that. And that's about where I want my folks to level. And on those days, maybe that's the day that you do show up with your, your cart full of, here's my Tasha's, here's my Xanathar's, here's the stuff so that people can look and see, okay, well, I want to do this, want to do this, want to do this, and go for that. Now, that assumes that you are trying to do this stuff in person. Um, and if you're not, then, of course, the, you know, what Tyler was talking about, the D&D Beyond is great. If you use the option where people can share your stuff, then they just always have access to it offline, which is awesome. Honestly, my biggest reason for saying don't always bring all of your books, they are voluminous and heavy. So the, the first long campaign that I played, my DM would regularly show up with a milk crate full of books that he would roll around because that's kind of what he needed to run his stuff with the, the particular game that he had going. And that's fine. It's just, it's a lot. And so, you know, trying to travel light is going to make your life a lot easier. I will say, even if you are in person, tablets are pretty small these days. A lot of laptops are pretty small. Like using D&D Beyond as a digital resource at the table, if everybody's comfortable and everybody enjoys that, I do think makes perfect sense. One other thing I'll say, talking about the idea of leveling up, it could be a way if you're going to play a long session, like if it's actually an all-day in-person session, leveling up might be a great way to just build in a break. If you can hit the milestone around when you want to take a lunch or a dinner break, then folks can kind of, hey, I'm thinking about doing this, I'm doing this. You switch to a more social setting, you're not in-game, you make your choices, and you level up. Another thing that you might do, if you know it's coming next session, and in the middle of the session you want them to level up, it's important. Having that conversation maybe two sessions ago or the session previous of saying, hey team, sometime soon you're probably going to level up if you bring me gifts. <laughs> And that way, and, and, and literally say, like, start thinking about what you want to do, kind of have an idea of where you're going to land. What that's going to do is you're not putting your players on the spot. They're not going to panic, like, oh, no, I'm going to make a wrong choice because I haven't really optimized for this because I was in the session. I wasn't thinking about the future. If they're thought about it ahead of time, ideally, they could come and they could say, I'm debating between these two options. People can have some fun conversations about it. Make your decisions. Resume your session. You know, one thing that I, I did want to touch on 
particularly given what Randall just said about having your D&D Beyond at the table, one of the things that you really are going to want to talk about is what should people sitting at your game be doing? And that's that's part of your session zero. So a lot of times things like laptops, tablets can be very distracting. That's part of the conversation that you should be having is like, okay, let's try and keep this to just pen and paper. And then if we need to look something up, great, we can pull out a laptop, we can look it up, we can look it up on a tablet. But screens are a very distracting thing for a lot of people. And in combat, maybe that's a reason why, you know, okay, we get to this turn, oh, haven't thought about it because, you know, they were looking something up. And, you know, maybe what they were looking up was something important to the the session, but still, it's a very distracting thing. So absolutely consider that as a, a valuable resource, but just keep in mind that that may be one of the things that perhaps you as a new DM have to give feedback on to your players. Like, hey, it seems like maybe we're not engaging super much. Is that something where we could maybe keep the screens away, keep the phones down until, you know, we're like looking something up between sessions? And I think that's a wonderful topic to bring up in a feedback session. As a DM, because you're kind of facilitating this, you can even ask the leading questions like, do people feel like they were as an individual distracted by screens at this session? And then you, everybody stare at that one person who spent the entire time on the phone. <laughs> I have been that person, and I'm sorry to the people who I've done that to. I, I, find, I find when I'm a player, screens can be very distracting for me personally, so I try really hard to go for paper character sheets when I can. And it, it's totally fine to admit that about yourself, and knowing your own limitations and your own flaws is really helpful. Even if you're not the DM, accept that feedback. Maybe put the screens down and opt for pencil and paper if that's a better fit for you. But if it's not causing problems, and of course, everything except D&D has books available as PDFs. So even if you're not using D&D Beyond, you can still pull up a PDF on your phone or your laptop or whatever. Yeah, I will say on the other hand, so Tyler regularly live tweets our, our regular weekly game that we play. Everybody at the table loves that and enjoys going and reading it later. So Tyler, you should continue to be slightly distracted by a screen. That's actually what I came up with to keep myself from being distracted by other things. Is to focus on on this one particular... Yeah, okay. That's fair. (laughs) Uh, I do the same thing with music when I work, right? Like, uh, I'm distracted by too many things, but if I can put on music, I can at least focus. Exactly. Incidentally, do not put on your headphones and listen to music at the table. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I, you know, that's one of those things that it feels like should be pretty self-explanatory, and yet, and yet. Yeah, thought I'd throw it in there. It's like, I'm not really liking this, like, lodging campfire music you've got going on, so I'm going to listen to some Foo Fighters. One of the other things, as a DM, in a long-running game, you're going to need to keep your own notes. Now, your players may be keeping notes, which is awesome. They may not, also fine. But for your sake you're really going to want to keep track of like what has been happening to important NPCs, particularly if you're trying to make the NPCs as big a piece of the game as something like in Call of Another Deep, where there's the whole rivals. You literally need to have that written down because the story is different depending on what various relations are. That's a, a huge impact. So something like that, can you can absolutely keep track of like even... Like, where are people at any given time? And that, that, can, that can be important. If you're running something like Red Hand of Doom, where you need to know what day is it, keeping track of the rests that the party has taken can be very helpful. So you need to write down some things, or at least you know have a place where it's noticeable for you. 
And that's where it really takes back to what I was talking about for like, read your material, be very familiar with your material so that you know what is important enough that you need to write it down. And for those among us like me who have terrible, terrible memories, writing things down is very, very helpful. And sometimes you may notice that what you have written down and what your players have written down about the same thing are different. And that is a great opportunity to mess with your players. If that happens, there's several good ways of going about this. If you are able to on the fly, just yes and what they said, that can be a hilarious way, particularly if the players themselves don't agree about what happened. If you just like, you know, like two people took notes and like, well, this guy's dead. We put him back in town. What are you talking about? <laughs> and then just say, yup. And like you find them in town later and then you go to the graveyard and there's also a headstone for him. Gaslighting your players safely in game is hilarious. <laughs> yes. Gaslighting your characters. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> and the surprise is great for everyone. I, as a player, love being surprised. So if a DM were to come along and be like, ah, Tyler has latched onto an incorrect piece of information and I'm going to use that against him, that reveal would be so much fun for me. So don't feel like you're doing this to punish your players. This is great storytelling and hopefully everybody enjoys it. All right, so there is another situation that could happen to you. We've talked about a one-shot as a new DM. We've talked about running a long campaign for a group of people, friends presumably. What if you have an emergency game? (laughs) This has happened to me a couple of times. You're in a group setting doing something that's not D&D, and very suddenly someone wants to play D&D. Your plans for whatever you're doing there have changed dramatically. So, like, let's say it's Christmas Day. One of your family members who loves you very much has bought you this new RPG book, and you open it with joy, and you're like, ah, yes, thankful. Thank you. You understand me, and I love you for this. And they're like, hey, will you teach me how to play that today? And you think, oh, no, but also, oh, yes. Because the the excitement of getting to teach someone new how to play, but at the same time being put on the spot when you don't have all of your stuff can be very stressful. And there's a lot of pressure to get it right. These are people you have to deal with constantly. <laughs> yes. Having kind of an emergency DM slash GM kit is very, very helpful. Now, this doesn't need to be some huge physical thing that you carry around, but like that could but it be should enough. be. Just you have a backpack, like you've got the go bag. <laughs> You've got the emergency DMing bag. <laughs> yes, in your emergency DMing bag is five sets of dice, spiral-bound binders. You can usually get away with just a starter kit for whatever game you like to play. People will most frequently ask you, like, will you teach me to play Dungeons & Dragons because it has that name recognition? And even if that's not your game of choice, it's, it's totally fine to teach them on D&D and then suggest moving something else later. The name recognition makes things much more accessible for people. And of course, 5th edition D&D is a very accessible game with a ton of support and a lot of resources. Carrying a starter set somewhere where it's accessible, like maybe you just hide it in a corner in your car or something like that. But if a physical thing isn't an option for whatever reason, just knowing where you can download PDFs for a short adventure like Wild Sheep Chase or Big Trouble in Little Absalom or something for some other system that you like to play. Anything for Adventure Week. Like if those mini dungeons are awesome and they have them for Pathfinder as well as D&D. Absolutely. Yeah. And pre-gen characters as well. Like just 
stick the PDFs in a in a cloud storage file somewhere. And when someone says, hey, will you teach me to play D&D? You can say, does sure. your printer have ink? <laughs> Give me 10 minutes and a printer and we'll be ready to go. So just having quick access to those basic materials is really helpful. Like we talked about on the previous episode, if you don't want to carry around a ton of physical dice, just having a dice roller app on your phone is fine and sharing it with the other people you're going to be playing with. Here's how you're going to roll dice. If you have a good time today, we'll go buy you a set of dice. And that is one of my personal pleasures is taking people to buy their first set of dice at a real game store. Feels really good. I will say there's like a certain amount of absurdity to this that I love because folks who don't know a lot about tabletop, but love fantasy and love board games will approach you and say like, hey, will you teach me how to play? And, and it's some cross between like, I hear you play guitar, play me a song. Like just perform for me right now on this spot. <laughs> But it's also like, I want to learn how to play Rummy right quick. So let's just bang through this. And it's like, you don't know what you are asking me to do right now. <laughs> like, I'm going to do this, but I need you to know that you have to be with me 100%. You have to do everything that I'm going to tell you to do. It's going to be rough. I think we can make it together. You tell your loved ones. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> like, this is why, I mean, you know, we, we sort of brought this up in the, in the holidays episode, which you can go back and listen to, but this is why this sort of thing does tend to happen when there's a bunch of people around and no set plan. If you do have someone for six, 10 hours, absolutely go nuts. You know, you, you can very much get something like this. And particularly if you do have something prepped as a first time DM doing it on the spot, that's absolutely going to make your life harder. That's why we're, we're really leaning into like, just have a starter kit, have all of this stuff prepped it's just you know, on the off chance that someone does ask you, because I mean, putting this up, you know, putting together like a couple of PDFs and some dice is going to take 15, 30 minutes of your time, particularly if you like, if you're a long time player and that's how people know. And so, you know, then yeah, just keep it like in a binder, keep it, you know, in your, in your car trunk or, you know, boot or I guess whatever various other things that other English speaking countries call your, the trunk of your car. What do you call it? The Tesla front hood? The, the frunk? The frunk. <laughs> yes. I, I believe that is the technical term. Well, fantastic. Thanks, I hate it. There's, there's a lot of things like that that usually you're going to have some time because uh, unless you really are in like a, a holiday situation where like, just kidding, none of us knows what to do for six hours. It's usually going to be like, hey, I, you know, I, I know that you play D&D and like it's around a water cooler. Do we still do those? Oh, no, wait, it's the pandemic. <laughs> so, you know, someone messages you on Teams or Slack and says, hey, I hear you play T&D. And you say, great, let me get back to you. Another thing I'll bring up for this emergency game is I, I do think finding a way to limit the number of people that you're involving in it, if it's possible. Yeah, playing in a game with six or seven people can be painful. If you're a new DM or a mildly experienced DM, the idea of taking like eight people from your family, putting them around the table and running a game is going to be nightmarish for them, for you. It's going to give them a bad impression of it. It's going to make you feel bad about being a DM, when the reality of it is, if there were only three or four people, it'd be a lot better. And so gently having that conversation, again, you know, going back to the intensity, I had a moment ago, who really wants to do this? And, and having that conversation of like, well, look, let me run a game for three or four people. And then if you folks want to do this you know, tomorrow, presumably we're still together, or maybe it's late, later this afternoon, I'll run another one with you. That's probably going to give everybody a better experience than it would if you tried to have eight people. Because now, like even finding content designed to run for eight people, an eight-player encounter 
good luck getting the encounter math right for that, where it's both meaningful combat, everybody has fun, and it doesn't take three hours, you know, just to kill your very first rat. I... The, the yard trap. Yes. Uh, the lawn crawfish. As it were. <laughs> All right. This week's question of the week comes to us from... Better. What has been your favorite monster or monsters to fight and to use as a DM? Has it changed over the editions? I really, really like dragons. Um, <laughs> he does. No, it's true. <laughs> Loves dungeons. I love dungeons. I love fighting dragons. I like fighting dragons in dungeons. So, you know, there's a game for me out there somewhere, I hope. Yeah. He also likes paths. I want to be very clear. <laughs> and, and loves if, to stumble upon them. And if you read the, the website, in fact, he has, in fact, figured out how to enjoy playing as a dungeon and a dragon. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. <laughs> uh, sincerely, though, I love fighting dragons for some reason I can't quite explain. Like, every time I know that there's going to be a dragon fight the next session, I am very, very excited about it. My wife... I, likely remember several times from years and years ago where I told her like, Hey, we're going to fight a dragon next week. And she's like, great, Tyler. I'm so happy for you. But that is exactly what she said, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had a recent game where we knew we were going to be fighting a mechanical dragon and Tyler had an entire plan about exactly what we were going to do for this. Mm-hmm. We were going to do the, uh, as a fastball special fastball special. Right. And so just, Yeet Tyler's character at the dragon, give the dragon a big old hug, and then unfortunately we made it to the session and found out it's too big. <laughs> yeah, too big for the grapple. Darn. But yeah, I like fighting dragons as DM. As a DM, I love running them just because they're they're a big scary monster with a bunch of fun buttons to push. And when the players kill them, you get to give them this big hoard of treasure, and everybody celebrates. So I'll say to fight. There's definitely a lot of good options having something small that you have a lot of is very satisfying for the same reason that eating rice is very satisfying when you want to eat 10,000 or something. Right. (laughs) But no, I mean, you know, just getting to like, ah, yes, let me fireball eight things. And then you get to laugh maniacally as you throw a pile of D sixes down. Any of your like kobolds, goblins, really just anything small, super satisfying to fight as a DM. I am notorious for doing really mean things with floor ghosts. Now, 5th <laughs> edition has stopped me from doing this by saying, okay, if the ghost ends its turn in an object, it takes some damage. I kind of don't care. Um, <laughs> so to the answer, or to the question of... Yeah, has the it feedback ch- is, please stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so to the question of, has it changed over the editions? Sadly, yes, because I can no longer just floor ghost forever. So 5th edition... I actually haven't had nearly as much chance to run game in 5th edition as I have in 3.x content. I've mostly been a player. But in 5th edition, there's some really cool things to run. I Honestly, you know, what Tyler said about dragons, running them is a ton of fun because they're very smart. They have a lot of buttons. And particularly, you know, if, if you do get one of the older ones that has, like, some, some spellcasting ability, actually, I guess technically a change between 3.5 and Pathfinder, in 3.5, I love me some Florgos. In Pathfinder, when I was running that Rise of the Rune Lords, there was an old. So it like it goes from adult. Does it go straight from adult to ancient? No, I think there. I think old is an age category. Yeah. So there's an old blue dragon, and that was one of the ones that I really took some time to set up because it was like a big climactic fight. And blue dragons have this ability to 
project functionally like a shadow clone of themselves that they can cast their spells and their breath weapon out of. Okay, it's like a simulacrum for the dragon. Yeah, and so I set the dragon up in a corner of his lair, had him cast a wall of force that covered everything but the bottom three inches of the ground, and then hide behind it, so he turned himself invisible, and then that bottom three inches gave him line of effect to maintain the projection in the other corner of the room, and that was just wrecking my players for, like, three rounds before they figured it out. It was so much fun. I miss dragons being spellcasters by default in 3X, but the complaint in 3X was dragons are just powerful sorcerers who happen to be giant flying lizards. And now we're back to 5th edition where dragons are just giant flying lizards. I wish they were more magical. Yeah, it's hard to get right. But they're still fun to run either way. Legendary creatures in 5e are a ton of fun. I haven't run enough Pathfinder 2nd Edition to really have any favorite monsters yet, but a lot of the monster design in PF2 is really, really good, so even just basic monsters frequently have a ton of fun things about them. So I'm going to give kind of a cop-out answer. I really like intelligent creatures of dubious alignment. I think it can be a lot of fun to have, you know, the hag you meet in the wilderness who doesn't immediately attack the players give a little exposition, have a little bit of backstory, having a bit of a conversation where it's like, okay, party, we should probably kill the hag, but also she's asking us for a favor and she has nice things that maybe she says she could do for us, which, you know, don't believe her, it's going to go terrible. But I think generating RP with intelligent creatures can be a lot of fun. So that's the first thing that I'll add to it. Yeah. The other thing that I want to say is interesting mechanics as part of a creature. So we talked a lot about grapple across this arc. If you're new DM, learn about grappling. It's a lot of fun. As a DM, new or old, using creatures that can grapple, especially around water, can be really, really fun. You know, Tyler and I were talking about this the other day, like a giant crocodile that grabs someone and then uses its movement to go back into the water. For the entire party, everybody's like, oh, what are we going to do? Another good example is we can hack. So green hags can breathe underwater. Now, they're not particularly strong, but they're strong enough to grab the wizard. <laughs> you know, this can be a lot of fun to create a dynamic where it isn't that often that the wizard is in mortal per- peril. Is everybody else going to dive into the water to free free the wizard from the green hag? Is the wizard going to try to go to fisticuffs with the green hag out of water? Like, it can be a cool... It's combat, but the combat really has a feel beyond just the typical mechanic you know, I rolled the attack, please roll me a saving throw, blah, blah, blah. It's like, you're going to die, dude, and you're not even going to die from HP. You're going to drown. Any monster like that that can split the party forcibly is really cool. I, I, we have previously talked about phase spiders. I don't think they made it into 5th edition. They did. Yeah, yeah. They're... <laughs> I frequently skip that page. I don't blame you. But yeah, so like grabbing someone and just pulling them into a different plane. Hilarious. Something like purple worms. Swallow somebody, go back underground. What are you going to do? Like, this is an immediate way to force the party to think in a way that they don't about combat, which is a really cool tool. All hail the Leisure Illuminati. I'm Randall James. You can find me at AmateurJack.com and on Twitter at, at JackAmateur and Instagram at JackAmateur. You'll, you'll find that his profile pictures have been changed to William Shatner. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm Tyler Kempster. You'll find me at RPGBot.net. 
Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RPGBOTDOTNET and patreon.com slash RPGBot. And I'm Random Pal. I don't really participate in social media very much, so you'll find me mostly here on RPGBot.net contributing to the podcast and writing some articles. On top of that, you can find me in places where people play games, often as Harlequin or Harlequint. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast and rate us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. It's a quick, free way to support the podcast and helps us to reach new listeners. You can find links in the show notes. You'll find affiliate links for sourcebooks and other materials linked in the show notes, as well as on RPGBot.net. Following these links helps us to make this show happen every week. If your question should be the question of the week next week, please email podcast at RPGBot.net or message us on Twitter at RPGBOTDOTNET. Please also consider supporting us on Patreon, where you will find early access to RPGBot.content, polls for the future content, and access to RPGBot.discord. You can find this at patreon.com slash RPGBot. I'm looking out the window, and it's like, it was a dark and stormy night, but it was noon. (laughs) And it's not dark or really stormy. I mean, it's been variably dark from the clouds. There's waves on the lake.